Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This week, I'm going to be talking about a case that has been requested multiple times by multiple people since I have started my podcast. While researching this case, I learned a lot. I thought I knew this case, but in actuality, I knew nothing about this case. It is not what I thought it was. It's a well-known Australian case, and a movie has even been loosely based around this case. And when I say loosely after researching it, I mean loosely. But now I know the movie in the real case, they don't, they don't, I mean, they do have similarities, but it's factually, it's very different. So let's hear it. December 27th, 1944, a baby boy is born fifth into a family to eventually be one of 10 boys and four sisters, a really big family. This family lives in a suburb outside of Sydney, Australia. At a very young age, this boy starts getting into trouble with the law for entry-level crimes like theft, break and entering, and even goes to juvenile detention center. Once released at 17, so he went in in before. So he's released at, at 17 and then he's released and then he's caught again for stealing and and breaking and entering but now he's 18 so now he can go to adult prison so he goes there for over a year then he gets out and he steals a vehicle and then he goes back in for two years this then happens again once he is released after that and he goes back to prison for three years by 1971 he is free again and he's 26 years old at this time and in april of that year he goes to a train station and he sits outside and he waits this train station is in a suburb in um, greater western sydney but this 26 year old man he wasn't waiting for a train he didn't know anyone arriving that day but he hangs around and he waits what's he waiting for though Then he sees a couple of 18-year-old girls arrive at the train station. And when they step outside, he offers them a ride. The girls are like, okay, sure, it's two of them. So they get into his vehicle only to be threatened with a knife if they scream. Somehow he drives them away from the station and into the woods where he ties them up and makes a deal with them. That deal is that if one of them has sex with them, he won't he won't kill both of them he won't kill either of them they'll be set free so after a lot of talking uh one of the girls at knife point says okay i will have sex with you just don't kill us and the other one is sitting in the vehicle as well and has no choice but to watch this scene happen in front of her the man then drives them to a gas station they convince him they're like okay well like we did our deal can we go to a gas station and get some drinks and snacks and he was like yep so they go to a gas station and the girls run inside and plead for help they break away they get help the man he drives away real quick after the girls run away and a couple men they run outside to apprehend him but he's gone The police are called and the girls tell them that 
they were just abducted and one of them was raped at knife point. The police take a description from the girls and the and they file a report. August of 1971, four months after the incident, this same man was part of a bank robbery. And when his accomplice was caught, he rolled on the man. He told, he said, yep, this guy did it with me. And he was arrested for that. So the accomplice who, who rolled on this man, it was his own brother, actually. When the man was arrested, he was then let out on bail. So he gets let out on bail for the bank robbery, but then police they arrest him again for the abduction and rape of the two girls the man then changes his identity and flees to new zealand for over two years he splits he's gone nobody sees him for two years until 1974 he returns to australia and he ends up in court for the abduction and rape charges it was in this trial he claims it wasn't rape because the girl agreed to it it was consensual the defense argued that because the woman admitted to previously having sexual relations with other women that she is some kind of sex maniac and would basically sleep with anyone so she couldn't have been raped by this man. Absolute bullshit. The man was acquitted of these charges and sent free. He was also acquitted of the bank robbery charges. If he would have been sentenced, it's possible that a lot of people would still be alive today and a lot of families wouldn't have had to suffer. The man I've been talking about this entire time, you might know his name, Ivan Malat. I'm now going to jump ahead 18 years after this trial to September 1992 to the Belangelo State Forest, an hour and a half from the Sydney CBD. Two hikers are out practicing navigating with compasses and maps and, and just practicing some orienteering, if you'd like. When they discover a body in, I don't even want to call it a shallow grave because it was a body laying there just mostly covered with sticks and leaves. Police are notified and not far from that body, they find another one the next day. So the next day, they're doing, you know, a more thorough search of the area and really close to that body they find another one they make an id using dental records and missing persons reports and they discover the bodies are that of two young british backpackers reported missing five months earlier after meeting at a hostel in sydney and hitchhiking together to mildura in april 22 year old joanne walters and 21 year old caroline clark were the these missing women Joanne's parents even came to Australia to look for her after her disappearance. Incredibly heartbreaking. Joanne had been discovered first by the hikers and she had been stabbed four times in the chest, once in the neck and nine times in the back. The medical examiner said that her spine was stabbed and it would have paralyzed her, yes, but it also would have kept her alive which is absolutely horrific. They also found a wire garrote near the body, which is used to strangle somebody. Only 30 meters away is where they found Caroline's body. Caroline had been shot 10 times in the head as if used as target practice, is what the medical examiner thinks or the forensic investigators. And she had a cloth wrapped around her 
her head, which had been put there before she was shot. She had also been stabbed multiple times. To me, this suggests a lot of anger from the murderer. A forensic anthropologist believes it's, it's, you know, he believes it's pretty likely that this act wasn't carried out alone by one murderer. He thinks that judging by the injuries because they were so very different on each women that possibly it's two murderers police find bullet casings all over the crime scene and conduct a search of the area they also offer a large reward for anyone with information that leads to an arrest but they turn up nothing and no information leads them anywhere One year goes by and a local hiker named Bruce Pryor has been looking for evidence in the forest ever since the bodies were discovered and in October of 1993 he comes across a skull. He's fearful the murderer is lurking in the woods so he takes the skull to police. He then shows police where he had found the skull in the Belangelo State Forest. When police go to where the skull was discovered, they find another skeleton just 22 meters away. These were the skeletal remains of young Australian backpackers Deborah Everest and James Gibson, who had been missing for three years after they were last known to be hitchhiking from Sydney to attend a conservation festival in December of 1989. Their skeletal remains were only 600 meters from where Caroline and Joanne were discovered a year earlier. So how police missed it, I don't really know because 600 meters, that's not that's not that far of a, of a radius to search. James was stabbed in the spine causing paralysis and also stabbed in the heart and lungs with a total of eight stab wounds. This to me indicates someone who perhaps hunts. Deborah's skull was fractured in two places and she was beaten severely as she also had a broken jaw. She had knife wounds on her forehead and she had also been stabbed in the back. It was discovered that she had been tied up with her own tights. I didn't read anything specifically finding evidence about sexual assault, but I do wonder. It's possible the examiner couldn't conclude yes or no on that due to the length of time the remains were exposed to the elements. Police then assemble over 300 officers to search the forest. And this time they find something. I should mention this forest is 3,800 hectares, which is 9,390 acres. It's huge. So I can see why it's easy to miss something, you know, but maybe not in a 600 meter radius. So anyways, they go out to search it and they find skeletal remains of another young missing backpacker on November 1st, 1993. 21-year-old German backpacker Simone Schmiedel. Simone had been hitchhiking alone when she was picked up by the backpacker killer. In January of 1991, Simone left Sydney that morning to hitch to Melbourne. The medical examiner concluded that due to the evidence left on the bones, her bones, she had been stabbed at least eight times, two of which were to the spine paralyzing her just like the other victims. 
She was also stabbed in the lungs and heart. A wire noose was found very close to her, like next to her at the crime scene. On November 4th, just three days later, the search team finds yet again two more skeletal remains of young missing backpackers from Germany. 20-year-old Anna Habsheed and 21-year-old Gabor Nugbauer. Anha and Gabor had left Sydney to hitch to Meldura for fruit picking work, as many backpackers do. December 26, 1991 is when they were last seen, is when they were going hitchhiking. And after that, they were never seen again. Anna had been decapitated with one blow, so possibly with a machete. Her head to this day has never been found. She also suffered she also suffered multiple stab wounds and like found in the other victims she had been stabbed in the spine as well. Gabor was found 50 meters away with 6 bullets in his head from a 22 caliber rifle. He had also been stabbed and gagged and so they had found a cloth around his head which would have been his gag. It appeared the killer hung around for a while or perhaps revisited the scene because 47 bullet casings were found in empty boxes, were found around the scene, and so were empty boxes of ammunition. Whoever did this, they hung out, they shot their gun, they, yeah, it was like their hangout spot. Police continued to search, but after 12 more days, they called it off. This is bringing the total of seven bodies found in the Belangelo State Forest. A forensic profiler assessed the scene and gave them a profile of who they might be looking for. He suggests brothers who grew up with guns have a history of criminal activities, perhaps an isolated family, and someone who craves control. Recently, police had been to a local gun club because all all of the um, shell casings and empty boxes of ammunition and, and stuff like that, they thought, well, perhaps this person is a member of the gun club. So police go and visit the local gun club and they're asking around. They're like, have you guys noticed any suspicious activity or, you know, things that, you know, have just seemed a little off? And members of the gun club tell police to talk to a man named Alex Malat. Alex Malat tells police that on April 26, 1992, him and his friend saw two vehicles turning into the Belangelo Forest, both cars each having a distressed, tied-up woman in the back seat. And he also gave a remarkable detailed description of the men in the cars and of the women, and it was just, the detail was just too amazing to be true for police. When police asked why he never reported it, he told them that he just thought the vehicles were going into the forest for a good time. Okay. Police are now looking at Alex's brother, Ivan. So they start looking into this family. They're looking for somebody with a specific criminal record. And, you know, they find the abduction and rape charges that he was acquitted of about 20 years earlier. This now brings me to Paul Onions. So this is how they really tie it all together. So Paul Onions was back in the UK when he saw police were searching the Belangelo 
forest for missing backpackers and he calls police to tell them something that would crack this case wide open but although there is record of his call the information wasn't flagged as really important and it got lost for five months finally five months later police call paul back and they couldn't believe what they were hearing and after confirming his story with a police report that um, paul had filed back in australia when he was there backpacking um, they confirmed that his story was accurate and true and they fly him out to australia to help with this case January of 1990, Paul Onions was hitchhiking from Sydney to Melbourne when a man named Bill offered him a ride. I'm putting Bill in air quotes. So you can't see that, but Bill offered him a ride. Paul was happy to accept this ride as he had been trying for a while with no luck. They get on the road for about an hour. So, you know, they start driving, an hour goes by. When just 400 meters from the Belangelo Forest, Bill says he needs to pull over to get cassette tapes. But Paul glances down and he notices there's a ton of cassette tapes in between them. So this is uh, this is kind of weirding Paul out. And he's like, okay. So Bill pulls over and he starts digging under the seat. And Paul's like, okay, um... I'm going to get out. So he tries to open the door to get out and and Bill stops him. He's like, hey, like, what are you doing? And Paul's like, oh, I just need to stretch my legs. And then Bill says, oh, no, no, we're going to go. Let's go. So then Paul sits back down. Bill, again, goes back to like lean under the seat to start looking for cassettes and immediately pulls out a gun and tells Paul it's a robbery. But then Bill pulls out a rope and Paul realizes this isn't a robbery because that rope indicates something much more sinister. And Paul knows. He's like, this isn't a robbery. There's a rope involved. I'm a poor backpacker. I literally have like no money and nothing for a value for you to steal. So this immediately kicks in Paul's fight or flight and he flights hard. So Paul had recently been in the Navy. So maybe this helped him in this situation. As soon as Paul saw the rope, he ran out of the vehicle and started zigzag running. Bill was shooting at him, and but luckily he missed. Uh, Paul was trying to flag down vehicles, but nobody would stop, and Bill was following Paul with the gun, so Paul just jumped in front of a van. The van stopped. Paul jumped in and screamed, he's got a gun, and the woman stepped on the gas, leaving Bill in the dust. Paul said he looked back so I watched this interview it was the only interview that Paul ever did and it was with 60 minutes and Paul said that when he looked back he could see Bill air quotes Bill with a smirk on his face so it was almost like he was like "Mm, he got away you get to live Paul and the woman who picked him up they go straight to police to file a report but there was no follow-up there was no investigation nothing happened from this report According to my timeline, Deborah and James went missing in December of 1989. Then Paul was picked up only weeks weeks later in January 1990. And had the man who picked up Paul been caught, then perhaps the five others could have lived. Because in January 1991, that's when Simone went missing. 
and then Anna and Gabor, December 1991, and then Carolyn and Joanne in April of 1992. So, and like looking back, like reflecting on these dates, I noticed that a majority of these are in December and January. So like I said, police fly Paul Onions back to Australia to help with the case and they get Paul to identify their abductor and when they give him a photo lineup without hesitation he points at one guy and he says that's him that's Bill. Bill wasn't Bill at all. Bill was actually Ivan Malat. Police go to question Alex Malat again and when they are leaving him and his wife produce a backpack Ivan had given them. This backpack belonged to the young German solo hitchhiker who was found dead in the state forest, Simone Schmiedel. After Paul's evidence, police are ready to arrest Ivan Milat and search his home. And that's exactly what they do on May 22nd, 1994 at 6.30am. Once Ivan is arrested, they search his home and it was absolutely insane at the amount of evidence they found in his home police found hundreds of items belonging to the murdered backpackers like simone's tent deborah's sleeping bag even a photo of ivan's ex-girlfriend wearing the sweater of one of the of one of his victims the police hit a gold mine the evidence was everywhere and lots of it then they basically find the smoking gun, but more like dismantled pieces of a gun hidden in the wall. The same type of gun used in the murders, like those pieces belonged to the same type of gun that were used in the murders. So when they took those pieces, put them together, forensically tested it against the bullets found at the crime scene, it was a perfect match. And this was a very in-depth process this was accurate police also look into ivan's vehicles he had had and sold and owned in the past one of which paul onions ids as the vehicle that bill slash ivan picked him up in that day ivan had sold it but when they track it down the new owner says that he found a bullet under the seat when he bought it and it's the same type of 22 caliber bullet used in the murders the evidence is more than stacked against ivan at this point like there is so much evidence and if you can remember the um hitchhikers that ivan had picked up in the 1970s the two girls from the train station um the ones that the he got acquitted for the abduction and rape well it got brought up that in that trial so the girls say that when he had kidnapped them and was like holding them at knife point to have sex with them they had asked him if he had ever done that before and he said yes lots of times it was also reported ivan was known to be controlling and violent to women he was in relationships with and it was speculated all his murders happened when he was in between these abusive controlling relationships so him and his wife who divorced they had a child together and when she wanted to have another child she brought it up to ivan she's like you know i think i want to have another baby and he was like if you get pregnant i'll shoot you 
and he would just he he just did really controlling things he would like break stuff in the house and then he would be like don't you touch that until I tell you you can like just really controlling and not good one of Ivan's ex-girlfriends told 60 Minutes that before the missing backpackers were turning up in the forest Ivan had told her quote they shouldn't be hitchhiking there might be rat bags like me on the road unquote it was also reported by the co-workers of Richard Malat, so that's Ivan's brother that Richard had said quote there are more bodies out there unquote and quote I know who killed the Germans unquote but in an interview with 60 Minutes he denies these claims he said he never said that when asked why some of the camping gear from Caroline were found in Richard's shed he said he didn't know and that the police probably planted it there I'm going to link this interview as the journalist did. He did a really amazing job actually. And it it gets a little bit heated. Like the journalist really puts the heat on. It's a 60 minute interview. It's a, like the show 60 minutes the interviews I think 20 minutes but it's a 60 minutes interview from the 1990s with journalist Richard Carlton and he's interviewing Ivan's <clears throat> Ivan's two brothers and us and his sister-in-law and when you watch this interview you feel like you're watching a cross-examination in a courtroom or something like this journalist he's asking some some pretty hard-hitting questions after the police search Ivan's house and and they find all of the evidence, including they also even found some of Paul's clothes that were in his backpack that he, Paul had left in Ivan's truck when he pulled out the gun and he ran away. And Paul was like, those are my clothes. So, you know, this evidence was quite damning. So police had to sort through all this evidence, you know, to eventually charge Ivan with the murders. But until then, they charged him with uh, Paul Onion, like robbing Paul Onions. Ivan Milat was charged with the murders on October 24th, 1994. The trial lasted 18 weeks, and in July of 1996, Ivan Milat was convicted of seven counts of murder and was sentenced to seven life sentences with no possibility of parole. He always maintained his innocence, but the evidence was so overwhelming. In court, they showed items removed from Ivan's home as evidence, such as bullets from the same batch that they found in his home that matched the ones at the crime scene, a piece of cord which had blood DNA from a person who would have been a daughter to Carolyn Clark's parents. Why they couldn't specifically link it to Carolyn Clark, I don't know, but that's damning enough. All of Simone's camping gear was in the house, like cups, stoves, water bottle, tent, sleeping bag, all of it. The barrister in the Malat trial says he's convinced that either Ivan's brother Richard or Walter Malat helped carry out the crimes and even Ivan's defense lawyer was really looking at Richard and brought it up in court like I you know maybe we should look at Richard Malat and um yeah things got really messy there but Richard he's never been convicted of any crimes relating to this case and Ivan's family still defends Ivan and they say to this day that he is innocent 
Um, but one brother, Boris, he speaks out in interviews um, with 60 Minutes and he's been speaking out saying like he knows Ivan did it, like he's guilty and he just feels terrible about what his brother had done. So in 1996, Ivan gets his sentencing and he goes to um, prison for um, seven consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole. So he's going to be in there forever with no chance of getting out. In 1997, so one year after that, he did plot an escape, which was foiled. It did not work. 2001, he swallowed some sharp objects like small razor blades and staples maybe to be sent to like hospital and maybe he thought he could escape from the hospital but that also didn't work in 2009 so eight years later he cut off his pinky to mail it to a supreme court the, to mail it to New South Wales Supreme Court Justice the pinky never made it it got intercepted and um, when they tried to put it back on his hand it was too late so he did lose that finger in 2011 he went on a nine-day hunger strike because he wanted a playstation and they wouldn't give it to him october 27th 2019 at the age of 74 ivan malat died after a battle with esophageal cancer even on his deathbed, he wouldn't confess. In one police interview, he said, you can put a blowtorch to my ears or my eyes or whatever, I can't help you. He took those secrets to his grave. So the movie I was talking about that's been loosely based around this case, maybe you've seen it. It's called Wolf Creek. I think they made a few of them actually. Um, so, but if you've ever seen it, then you can see that there are very small similarities like the, like the, the stabbing in the spine, but keeping the person alive, that's in the movie and that happened in real life, but it didn't happen in the outback. It happened in a forest, happened in a, in a populated area, but you know, that movie and the crime, definitely not a shot for shot remake. They used a lot of creative licensing there for entertainment purposes. And but the real story, it's terrifying enough. It is so scary. I was a backpacker for eight years. A lot of that time, I traveled a lot of places alone. And yeah, there was some hitchhiking. And yeah, I even hitchhiked in Australia. So this case absolutely terrifies me. In an article by 7 News, it claims that Ivan could potentially be responsible for 20 murders that have been unsolved to this day but he's dead now he wouldn't confess so we will never know the amount of victims he had experts believe that ivan was a stone cold psychopath with no remorse who enjoyed killing people in November of 2010, 17 years after Ivan's murders, his 18-year-old nephew, Matthew Malat, and Matthew's friend, 19-year-old Cohen Klein, thought they would give murder a go, just like his uncle. The two boys get their friend, seven, their friend, quote, or air quotes, their friend, 17-year-old David 
Octorloni, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Octorloni, to go to the Belangolo Forest with them as it was David's birthday and they told him they were going to go drinking and smoking in the forest all day. But when they get to the forest, Cohen took an audio recording on his phone as Matthew yelled at David something about accusing accusing David of, of ratting him out or or something like that. And Matthew got David on the ground, face first on the dirt. And after all, a lot of screaming and kind of tormenting him, he hits him in the head with an axe, killing him. They then covered his body with leaves and sticks. There was another boy in the car with them, and he alerted authorities about the murder basically as soon as he got home. Matthew and his friend Cohen were arrested, convicted, and sentenced for the murders. Uh, Matthew, he was not reluctant at all to tell the world he was a murderer. He really boasted about this. Like, you know who my family is? And yeah, I'm sure the family hated that because they've been spending decades trying to clear their name, saying, you know, saying their Ivan didn't do it and their family is not murderers. And now they have their family member openly killing somebody admitting to it and then boasting about it so I don't think I couldn't imagine the family is very pleased with this Matthew will be eligible for parole in 2040 wow so yeah I think this is the so so this is the first serial killer case I've covered on my podcast and um, perhaps if technology keeps advancing I could do a follow-up maybe they can link more murdered backpackers from that area and that time to Malat to Ivan Malat it is really something that Ivan never confessed to anyone not an inmate not a friend not a doctor, not a detective, not police, nobody. He never once told anybody that he had committed those murders. And he served a lot of time in prison before his his death. And I'm sure hundreds of times he would have been asked about it by inmates. And he never once bragged about it. I, I don't know. Sometimes you hear that in cases where people get caught because they brag about their crimes in prison to kind of give them some like... I don't know, clout, if that's the word. Uh, he never did any of that. And, but with all that evidence, it was just so damning that they didn't need a confession. So that concludes this week's episode of the backpacker murderer, Ivan Malat. So to Ivan Malat, I say hell no. Don't forget to five-star rate me on Spotify and follow me on Spotify. Uh, also, to see photos about this case, follow Hell No on Instagram and or slash Facebook. I don't know why I said slash and or Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.